Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve with me, Oliver Lawrence, the host of what is now becoming an an ever-growing popular podcast across the United Kingdom, where we focus and look back on some of the most incredible careers in British policing. And I'm incredibly lucky to be sitting down uh, this morning uh, with Andrew Trotter, recipient of the OBE and Queen's Police Medal. Andrew, welcome to the podcast this morning. Yeah, I, I'm uh, very well, thanks, Ollie. It's, uh, my mum would call me Andrew when I'm in trouble, so Andy, please. It's, uh, I think everyone knows me right, but really pleased to be talking to you. So, Andy, like every interview, I like to wind back the career clock right back to the start and ask you, what was it that prompted you to get involved in policing in the first place? Yeah, um, my dad had been a, a police officer, but he was a he'd been a farmer in Ireland, and then he joined the police over here, and then he retired, went back to farming. Um, so I was brought up on the farm primarily, but uh, he was um, he was a bit agnostic about the police. My two brothers joined Kent Police, so it's obviously in the family. But I think the real reason was I'd done my A levels, wasn't quite sure what to do yet, didn't quite want to go to university, so I thought I'd join the cadets for a short time. And then I left 45 years later, so um, uh, I wouldn't say it was a master plan from the start, but once I got in, I loved it, and I've loved just about every day of that, of that 45 years. So what was it like going through the training in the 
1970s in comparison to what we see today? Well, I joined the cadets of the Blue Cross so-called B course at Hendon's, we just did a year, intensely physical. I was quite fit, you know, being on the farm, I played rugby to a good level, but it was it really, I've never been so fit, uh, never been so light. Um, and uh, that was really good. Um, and then you get attachments out to police stations and, and things like that. So that, that side of it was extremely good. I think the training at Hendon, once you became a PC, when I joined in the summer of 1970, um, was pretty straightforward. 13 weeks, uh, broke learning. Um, not, not that inspiring, but you know, I was a pretty able student, passed out top student. Um, and uh, it was really a machine. There was just one class every week, churning its way through. If people didn't pass the exam, they were back class. If they didn't pass the next time, they were out. It was quite ruthless. And our class got smaller and smaller as those 13 weeks wore on and then posted out to Maribyrn Lane in the West End after that. Um, so it wasn't particularly inspiring. It's pretty straightforward, but you know, I, I enjoyed it. What was it like when you first graduate and you go out into a borough and you're, you're stationed to, you know, you've got, you've got a senior officer that you're working with and, and you suddenly realise that policing offers these very unique challenges in terms of responding to events that you've probably never witnessed before outside of the training environment in terms of domestic violence, scenes of sudden death and, all, and sometimes quite confronting scenes. How did you manage all that very early on in your career? Yeah, the, again, the training, the, when you got out onto division was not that sophisticated. You're given different PCs to take you learning beats, as we called it then. Some of them were very good and some weren't very good at all. So you learned some good <laughs> things and some not so good things um, from them. I had some one or two really good tutors and others that were pretty hopeless to, uh, to be honest. I was quite a confident 19-year-old. I was looking forward to it. Um, uh, there's always that shock when you catch that picture of yourself in uniform in the shop window walking down Oxford Street or when an incident happens and everyone starts to look around and you realise they're, they're looking at you and you've got to go and deal with it or going to deal with some domestic um, incidents when you know, you're, say you're 19 and not that experienced in life yourself and they're looking at you to arbitrate over some family dispute um, which I, again I thought was when you're observing yourself doing things, I thought this is quite an interesting situation to be in. But I, I loved it. It was, it was huge fun, the West End of London. And uh, The only bits I didn't like were standing outside embassies. This was before the Diplomatic Protection Group was formed. And so as the new person, you spend quite a lot of your first few months guarding embassies, which was often crushingly dull. So you looked at every opportunity to undertake an arrest, if you could, to get yourself... Um, off there and going doing something more operationally useful but again it was all part of the way you were treated in those days as the, as the new one talking about sort of those early years what what point in your career did you realize that you know sort of the leadership capabilities of sergeants and inspectors was something that sort of was desirable to you and that you, you thought that you could obviously do what others were doing for you in terms of leading groups of men and women yeah i was fortunate to be appointed acting sergeant quite early even still within the in my probation and um, you know, I was quite used to sort of captaining teams. Again, I'll be frank with you, some of the sergeants in where I was working in the West End of London, the Maribyrn Lane, were not that impressive. Um, I learned a lot about how not to do things. Um, there were lots of them. Um, hard sometimes to work out who was supposed to be doing the reports on you. So I thought, that's not the way I would do that in the future. I think operational grip, um, visibility from supervisors, I think is very important because uh, I transferred down to Kent after about three and a half years in the net and saw a very different brand of supervision there, much closer, much tighter supervision, 
much more interested in individual development. And again, you, you work alongside people who think, I like that that you do, don't like that. And you, you learn from others to, the things you might pick up and use yourself when, once you get into that position. What was the transition? Because you're obviously in policing when the introduction of PACE came into effect. What were the, obviously quite a significant reform for policing in terms of that, that piece of legislation coming through. That must have been a big difference in terms of what you saw pre-PACE and then post-PACE. It was quite a transition. I was, I think, I was away at university when a lot of this stuff was coming in, um, and um, uh, coming back um, at the time as an inspector to the, the, the whole very different rules around everything that we do. I mean, it was required. I think uh, a lot of it was required because of the things that, as a police service, we didn't do so well in the past. You know, the role of the custody uh, officer, the whole roles around identification, the, the codification of, uh, of the things we had to do. Um, I think it was right. Um, I, I think it, it gave us a much more professional framework to work to. Uh, and when I look back at times before that, before proper custody and stations with a few a few cells, where I would be the, the section sergeant, I would be the custody sergeant, I would be doing everything all at once, and sometimes even the arresting officer, particularly when I was working in more rural locations. It was entirely unsatisfactory. So I think the professionalisation of that side of what we do was, was justified and I think it was right and I think broadly speaking I don't have too many problems with when that legislation came in um, and as an inspector you know I, I did a lot of really big identification parades on the, with the new practices uh, in, uh, in, in, in central larger police stations which meant we could offer a much better service to, to everybody so you know broadly I think it, it, went, it came in well and was handled quite well. One of the biggest impacts that um, you can have as a leader is at the rank of sergeant because you're working operationally with those that are delivering the service of the senior executive from the top down in terms of service delivery, meeting the expectations of the community and responding to their needs. What was that like for you in terms of what change were you able to deliver whilst at Kent as an operational sergeant, the decision-making processes? How rewarding was that for you? It, it, was, it was actually quite a challenge. It, 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 Sunday you're a PC and Monday morning you're a sergeant. And so sent to a sort of semi-rural station with some very tough old BCs who didn't particularly enjoy being supervised. Um, and again, I was quite confident. You know, I could judge that situation about how to uh, manage them. They needed some considerable management. Um, and, um, and looking back at it, I wouldn't have subjected anybody else to that without a, a proper introduction, proper supervision about the role. I was working on my own, rarely saw an inspector. Um, and I think it was um, it was quite a tough a tough job for someone relatively young in service. But, but you know we we came to the, the the right arrangements of proper supervision in the end. And I think that team in the end turned out to be a very good one. Um, but we had to have uh, quite a few frank discussions about the way that we were going to do business in order to get there. Which I think I think some people would have found that a really really difficult challenge. But uh, it was very enjoyable. I've always had this view. You know, you've got to be operationally very competent and you don't lose that competence when you get promoted. I always say to sergeants, inspectors, you haven't lost your warrant card when you get promoted. Get out there, lead from the front, set the example. You need to be good at what you do in every way, I think. And you need to demonstrate how to do it in supporting your officers, but also leading the way. You know, being that one that's first through the door into that violent confrontation and things such as that. Because you're a, you're a very important part of that team, particularly I found in the rural areas where we were very thin in numbers and your you know, communications were very poor. Assistance was a long way away. 
and they look to you to be a strong leader in those in those tough circumstances and that was that was a pretty character building experience what were some of your biggest highlights in those first early years when you look back on them where you had what you think is probably the, maybe the the biggest impact in people's lives i think when i was, I was asked to take over um, as sergeant in the village where i lived it's, it's a town now it's growing hugely um, because they've been growing amounts of disorder um, and I had a central police station, I had village constables in the outer uh, areas um, and I'd observed this growing disorder as a resident and I wasn't happy with it um, and I just set out a plan quite early to arrest um, and deal with at least three categories of people. One was the, the local youths who were just you know, creating a lot of damage and disorder, riding motorbikes around without helmets, all the usual sorts of things, but a real visible sign of a lack of policing. The next tier was the sort of the up and coming thieves um, who um, were clearly quite easy to identify from local families. And the next tier was what I called the, um, the pretend London villains, the ones who lived in the big houses out in the country who were boasted about how many cops it took to arrest them if we were bringing them in on warrant. So, you know, I had a very, fairly clear plan from the beginning and using everything, every tool at our uh, availability, that included dealing with traffic offences, drink drive, disqualification, right the way through to dealing with them for the substantive criminal offences. Um, and uh, that sort of all aspects approach, um, I think, got us a, a real grip on the local matters. Community started telling us things. That these are people who would not give statements. They would not be witnesses, but they would just tell me who was doing what in the middle of the chat. Um, we ended up with commendations for a series of crime arrests, a whole lot of things like that, and a really good team because we were all over it. We were very visible, um, took it personally, and we had the time, which a lot of officers these days don't have. We had the time and the numbers to deal with those issues. That My old police station is now gone. The village is now a town. It's probably at least three times bigger than it was and the officers now have to travel from a nearby town to get there and they now have, and I was talking to a resident the other day, the same sort of problems that I had in the early 80s and I find it deeply, deeply depressing that that sort of grip that we had, that control that we had, that good community involvement that we had, that responsive policing and sensitivity to local needs um, has been lost uh, as, as the police now retreat to bigger and bigger central police stations. What was, the, what was the point in those early years where you saw sort of the commission ranks as something that you obviously you'd had this experience as sergeant, you were, you know, formulating big plans, you were executing on those plans, you were making a difference at those early ranks, you were leading by example, you were challenging behaviours, you were setting good standards. Obviously, that lays a great foundation for then you to be able to move up into the sort of commissioned ranks, inspector, chief inspector, before you turn back to the Metropolitan Police Service in 1998. What was it like in terms of the responsibility and the higher levels of accountability at the rank of inspector and chief inspector in Kent? Um, it was interesting. I mean, part of it was just I was ambitious. You know, you look at the next challenge. Um, and if I'm honest, it's also the fact that I've been less than impressed by some of the people above me. Um, you know, those operations you're talking about, we used to put together on our own. Um, I, don't, I don't moan about buses. I think do what's within your gift to get on and do. And we did a lot of this ourselves with some, with some good colleagues. So, uh, and also, I needed the money. You know, I had uh, young, young children. The, uh, the pay was pretty poor at the time. Um, and some of it was just about getting on. I was, you know, I was inherently ambitious. 
Um, I wanted to do an operational job first. I had this sort of thing about I want to be operationally competent at, at, at each rank, and I hope I was, um, before I moved on. So it wasn't uh, it was speed, it wasn't everything. Um, and interestingly, when I got promoted, it was a, to inspect. It was a, a funny feeling, a sort of, of losing some operational grip that I had, you know, when I was doing my my rural work, and then working slightly differently with colleagues at a bigger police station uh, with a different group of people. But again, I always think, be visible, get up front, get out there, you know, walk the streets with your officers so they can see you as a leader. I think those things are are, are, are important at, at, at every. At every level, and um, yeah, so uh, it, uh, it, and then because we were dominated by public order um, during that time, you know, both as a sergeant and inspector, steel strike and power workers strikes, and I was up at the Toxteth riots, uh, helping out Merseyside, and then as an inspector, probably spent almost the whole year um, on the miners' dispute around the country, and then ultimately back in our own county of Kent. So that was a really, really interesting time to be doing with all of those sort of public order matters as an inspector around the country and dealing with your officers in sometimes extremely um, stressful and difficult situations. What's the skill in maintaining a level of professionalism and sort of composure amongst your junior ranks in very significant incidents of public disorder? You talk about travelling around the country, around the minor strikes, you know, very sort of violent confrontations with police. How do you keep everybody composed and professional and just, you know, meeting the expectations of what the media might see from outside? I think, uh, whether we were just fortunate, but we didn't have that much violence. I mean, I was at the so-called Battle of Orgreave, and we, I, most of, I saw most of the violence on the television later that day. You know, but wherever we went, I always encouraged everybody to talk to demonstrators, whatever. Um, didn't always work. Um, but, I mean, I remember the panel workers' strike at uh, the Isle of Grain, blazing hot day and they were in a bank above us leaning on us and it was beginning to really hurt um, and, and I just said to, the, to them, you know, I said look the demonstrators said we'll, we'll tell you when the, work, the workers are coming in because they wanted to yell and shout at the coaches but in between time let's all agree we'll break up, people are going to have a cup of tea, go to the loo and they, they thought this was quite suspicious <laughs> and I said now go and trust me and we did. You know, and, and then as I get it over the radio that the, the coach is due in 10 or 15 minutes, I'd shout out to them to reform. They would reform, we'd reform. And then it took the heat out there because we started to recognise each other as, in, as individuals and not as people behind a uniform. And everywhere we went there, we did. It wasn't always well received. There was often lots of hostile crowds. But I did find to humanise things, talk to people, um, and also it helps to calm your own folks down and not to stereotype uh, whoever we are dealing with. Um, and just to engage as best we can. But equally, when things get bad, to be out there in front, leading them in those situations. But having to intervene, I did intervene a few times if I felt some of my officers were getting a little overexcited. Um, because people do when they're stressed and under pressure. Nothing like the pressure officers are under these days with cameras up their noses every time they move. But I do remember being a, a punch-up at one of the seaside punch-ups at Brighton and having to remind an officer that he was on camera and to put somebody down or arrest them. You know, those sorts of things where you just want to be nice and calm, in charge. And even if inside you're not feeling that, you know, they are looking to you to, to be their leader in those circumstances. And, uh, you know, and quite rightly, they expect you to, to carry out that role. 
in those early years of policing, you know, uh, any sort of hairy moments that you look back on and think, crikey, I'm lucky to get out of that one without a scratch? I think there were quite a few, really. Um, because, as I say, radio commons were pretty poor. You know, you, you'd find yourself following a suspect vehicle into a traveller site and having to, to deal with that in some quite hostile situations. You'd find yourself uh, on your own dealing with a, a punch-up in a pub in the heart of Kent during hot picking season when you had some interesting characters um, out and about. Um, and it was a mixture of, you know, to be frank, a degree of physical confidence and prowess mixed with diplomacy. Um, and um, often realising, as I say, assistance could be a long, long time away. Um, so unlike the West End when I was as a PC, you just have to call over the radio and you'd, be there, you'd have been swamped with assistance in those days, it, within minutes. Um, out the countryside is very, very different. And also you're an individual, your target, because they knew you, you know, people knew who you were, they knew where you lived, um, and you had to be pretty firm um, if you were gonna you know, carry out your role uh, successfully. And that, that was an interesting, very, very different sort of pressure. Um, turning out in the middle of the night off duty, you know, if you heard a punch up in the village, um, you know, this is not unusual to roll out of bed uh, to go and help your officers who were on duty at that time. Um, you know, it, it was a different world, different times, different levels of observation of our behaviours. But um, it was, for me, you know, quite important to be in charge of the area, in charge of my officers, and being there to help them when they needed me. Can you hear me? Have you got me? You, yeah, you, you returned back to the Met in 1992 at the rank of superintendent. What prompted the move back to the Metropolitan Police? Was it because there were probably more greater opportunities, greater exposure to more complex issues? What was that um, driving factor? I really enjoyed my time in Kent. You know, it, was, it was great fun. Uh, you know, Chief Inspector Kent was, 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 was okay, but I wanted more. I'd always stayed living in the west of Kent, so because of the back of my mind, I was always going back to London. Um, and when you know, the advert turned up in the back of the police review, as it did in those days, I was you know, very pleased to, to grab that opportunity to go through that process uh, and to go back to the Met. I was looking for, again, you know, different experiences, different levels of challenge, um, which I knew the Met could offer. Uh, and also the fact that there would be more opportunities, as you say, um, in the Met at that time that would have been uh, in Kent. So. Um, it was interesting, you know, going back up to the Met, um, not quite sure where you'd be posted, would I have to move house in the children's school? And only to find the Met had no plan for me or anybody else for that matter whatsoever. Um, I, I rang Paul Condon now, Lord Condon, who was then Chief of Kent, to say, look, I, 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 you've backfilled my post, um, but the Met haven't got, a, 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 haven't got a, a job for me. And he was very good. He came to see me and just said, look, Andy, the Met does this to everybody. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a test of your resilience. Um, and I, I managed to work my way into um, South Area headquarters at Norbury, um, again, without a job. Um, so I set out to give myself a whole series of introductory meetings. I got hold of the Met internal telephone directory and got hold of the various murder squads and drug squads and juvenile bureaus and all sorts of different people and set out to go and visit as many places as I could. And everybody was very good. A bit suspicious at first, why is this superintendent coming to see us? But um, I learned a lot. And one of my fellow Met superintendents said he wished he'd been able to do it because he didn't know that much about the Met himself, being so big in the specialist departments. And then I worked my way into some posts where the superintendents were away. 
I worked at Croydon for a while and uh, Southwark for a while, and it was great. Yeah, to to be able to get out and about, to 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 mix with the front line, to go and get involved operationally into very very different uh, divisions as they were in those days. That was before I got my permanent posting at the time over to um, uh, to Wimbledon. Um, uh, you know, for a, a, about 18 months, which yeah, was just interesting. Um, superintendent, up superintendent, so the chief superintendent above you. But as always, I just I do tend to bring an operational focus and the questioning approach to what people are doing. Um, you know, and uh, you, you do end up sort of challenging some of the status quo about you know, our approach to the big focus crimes of burglary and robbery and things such as that, and our responsiveness to the public need. Um, and I really enjoyed it. You know, it was um, really good fun posts uh, at that time. When you when you move into a, a borough like Wimbledon, and you know, you, as you say, as a superintendent accountable to a chief superintendent, borough commander, what's the what's your initial priorities? What are you looking for? Are you looking sort of sort of how the, the police force is de- how the, how the borough is delivering its services? Is it is it cost effective? What's crime like? Are you looking at new strategies to try and implement from day one? The chief superintendents of those days were much more interested in um, community relationships, relationships with the local authority. They did a lot more of the external stuff. Um, they all varied a bit, but the ops, the ops superintendent, I used to say that the clues in the title that I was running the operational side. And so I was looking at exactly those things. I was looking at what's our operational delivery, what's our basic response to calls, you know, what's our response to crime, what are we doing about the priority crimes, at the time, the Met was still had a rather separate CID from uniform. As a Kent officer, I was used to being in charge of both CID and, and uniform. And so to wander into the CID office as a uniform superintendent was an interesting experience. Um, but, you know, I wasn't there to... Um, I was there to find out what was happening, to make sure we were properly coordinated, to make sure that our various squads were properly funded, and I was quite good at getting central funds for the imaginative report writing for... For extra resources um, and so we had a very very well funded uh, burglary squad with very very good results um, but also you know I'd say look, you're well funded I'm looking for you to to really do a good job the data is quite simple there's a line graph of the number of burglaries <clears throat> and a line graph of the number of detected crimes and um, you know and it was a, a real focus on frontline service delivery which did mean challenging some of the existing practices and some of the existing roles which or I couldn't quite see where the added value was, um, and making sure that everybody, be they schools officers, home beat officers or whatever, um, could do their job of a focus very much on, on the priorities of, of keeping our communities safe. Do you think that's what's meant by today is going back to basics, just getting that community policing model right so that the community has trust and confidence in police today, is able to, with confidence, provide greater levels of intelligence so police can direct, for instance, things like stop and search? Is that what we've got to try and get back to? Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's always a risk of it being an old retired cop talking about these things, but I think I, I miss that th- those things absolutely. You know, when we were responsive to calls... Um, we had people who knew their patch, people who had the time to follow up on crime and disorder. Um, and the fact that we would listen to our communities. Um, you know, it's an interesting term, communities, because there's, there's multiple communities and it's easier to stereotype groups into that. But as a shorthand for listening to our people um, and what the problems are. I think what is so dispiriting now is that 
the sense of um, police are so busy that if you ring up, they're more interested in perhaps telling you why they can't do something rather than they can. And you hear story after story of people who've got CCTV of the offender or they've tracked their stolen property to an address. You hear this over and over and over again um, from people's concerns about the fact that police are too busy to follow up. And you have response officers being given a crime uh, workload, which I just don't think they can deliver on. They're too busy either dealing with a response or, if in the case of the Met, been sent up town to deal with all the various demonstrations all the time, abstracted from their day job. Now, this is not a criticism of the organisation. They've been through savage cuts and they've seen much more complexity of demand than was ever in my day. So this is not a criticism. I just say that as a member of the public, those things that were so much more important, it, it, would, be, it would be great if we could start getting back to that sort of responsiveness to our community and giving people confidence that so-called sort of low-level crime, be it you know, shoplifting, be it whatever, criminal damage, theft of your bike, that someone's got some interest in that somewhere. Because there's a lot of organised crime that sits behind these so-called low-level crimes that the police ought to be getting stuck into. I don't envy them their job. You know, it's a tough, tough demand these days, and it's very much, much tougher than it was when I was doing the job that they're doing now. We're going to talk about a few big events throughout your career, but the first one I want to touch on, if I can, was when uh, you were at the rank of Deputy Assistant Commissioner, and I'm, I'm wanting to reflect on the um, 1999 Ladbroke Grove rail crash. Are you able to give us a bit of a, a, a sort of history on that incident, your involvement, and kind of what police had to investigate along with other different emergency services and organisations? Yeah, I, I, I was DAC coming into my office and then uh, telephoned by someone and told me about it. I had no direct um, operational command of that event. Um, I was DAC for Central London for crime. Um, but any being who I was, I went over anyway. I just made sure that we had the right command structure in place. We did have to change a few people to make sure that we had our, um, uh, the right people in the right roles uh, there. But on my arrival at the scene, the Met Police, British Transport Police, Fire and Ambulance, all working very well together horrific scene. What wasn't going well was the um, relationship with the media. I, I saw uh, a Met Police officer, a BTP officer, and a Weaver Fire officer all talking to different groups of the media who were turning up in droves because it was West London. It was, early, it was in, in the morning. There was obviously an area full of media um, who were swarming to the scene and were not being uh, put in one particular place. They were getting in the way. Um, and I just, had, just stopped everyone talking to the press because I thought no one knows what's happened here um, and was quite forceful about that. And then I found the St. Louis car park nearby where we could put all the media in there, which overlooked the scene. Interestingly, some of the officers said, well, you can't put on their bus because they can see the scene. I said, well, that is the point of putting them there. You know, it's not for us to um, edit out or censor what they show. That's their call, not ours. And if they're in there and they can film the scene, then it won't be hiring helicopters or cranes or getting in the way. And that worked. And then I, I appointed myself as a media spokesperson, um, spoke to the media about when they wanted to do press conferences rather than telling them, because, it, you know, the, um, because obviously the, of the news cycle, which was slightly different then, um, made sure they had access to all the information they could have, um, had very frank with discussions with them off air about a few things if I felt that they were going in, in, in the wrong direction on some matters but was absolutely frank and honest with them 
and they stayed where they were. There were no problems with them whatsoever. We had quite a big debrief with them afterwards. There were a few things we got wrong um, on that side, but the biggest feedback was it was great having a senior officer who could talk with some confidence about what was happening that wasn't so junior that they had to forever go back for further advice. And it wasn't either the SIO or the Gold Commander was often so busy and distracted that the media became a secondary aspect of, of their work. And some SIOs or Golds are, are good at the media and some are not. Some don't want to do it. They want to get on with their job. I was very fortunate to be working with some excellent um, public order and other commanders in my time in the Met. And we evolved from that a process where I would do a lot of the big events. Um, I still was the DAC in overall command, but the actual command of the goal was often the commander who'd be getting on and running it. And I would be doing the getting out and about on the ground, making sure that what I was saying to the press was accurate, because that wasn't always the case. Um, but also being sufficiently senior that I could go to any meeting, I could visit the scene, so I could deal with difficult questions as well. So it was a model that we used a lot for the big operations, and for the lesser ones, we get someone with a different rank um, to, to, to come along if we weren't trying to signal too much. Because you do signal a lot with your rank. Someone did rather unkindly say, Here comes KAD, you know, when I came to the one event, um, because they felt it was, must have been serious because I was turning it. And I didn't want it to be like that. Um, but you do May Day riots, Nottingham Carnival, New Year's Eves, presidential visits the Stop the War March, all these very big events um, where I was often fronting it. Um, and, uh, but it, actually the real work was being done by some of the brilliant public order commanders uh, behind the scenes. The, the, the Ladbroke Grove rail crash, was 31 people killed and 417 people seriously injured. One of the worst rail accidents in the 20th century in, in British history. Obviously, you've got officers exposed to significant trauma. There's obviously a huge welfare aspect to that in terms of debriefing people that are exposed to, you know, a horrific scene of utter carnage. You know, that, that must have been a, a big facet of, of, of your role and, and the gold commander's role and the SIs role, just making sure everyone's welfare is taken into account. It was. Uh, interestingly, we found the biggest stress was often those people who couldn't do what they wanted to do. You know, there's a group of officers who were very first on scene. There was a massive fence between them and the train at the time before the fire turned up and we couldn't get through the fence, they couldn't get over it, they didn't have any kit. Um, and there was a lot of frustration and anger uh, from them about that. But I found the officers who were actually doing the investigation, I think because you're actually doing something quite real, they're very absorbed, I'm generalising now, but that's... You know, it seemed to me we had less of a, of a challenge with them than we did with those who felt frustrated and a bit helpless and wanted to do more. Um, I don't, you know, our, our welfare wasn't quite as developed as it is now, but we had a lot of help from, help from the faith groups. They were really, really good, and it wasn't just about faith; it was getting out there and helping people. A lot of help from um, uh, the uh, people at Salvation Army with their canteens. You know, we used to walk around at the end of the day and compare. Yeah, the, the, the different amounts of food that were available to people from BTP, from the Met, from fire, from ambulance and voluntary groups. And that was really important to look after the staff there. Some of our staff are sleeping on the floors of their offices at night, you know, and working incredible hours trying to resolve that. Because there, there was a lot of debate about how many people died. And it was very, very difficult to work out 
other people walked away from the scene and went to work. So we went home. Um, a lot of cars were abandoned at the railway stations along the Thames Valley. And there's a bit of an assumption made that these abandoned cars must have meant that people had died, whereas in fact that wasn't true. It was just they couldn't get back to their cars. And one of the carriages, carriage H, um, uh, was very, very deep in ash. And there was a terrible theory that this was full of, uh, of accelerated bodies. As it happens, it wasn't. So there's a lot of... A lot of um, challenge to sort of deal with public fears and expectations, deal with relatives, deal with lots and lots of concerns. Um, but I was enormously impressed. So, you know, my first real contact a lot with British Transport Police, I thought they were excellent. Um, and I thought the emergent, the blue light response was really good. But, so the thing I took away from it um, was it's very, very, it was also very important in the way that we present what we do to the outside world, to not just present, but to inform, to give people access, and justifiable access. The Queen came down to the scene, um, they said to me, it's an informal visit, I like, can you have an informal visit from the Queen? Um, and I was talking to a protection officer about where she might stand, and I said, well, there's this wall here, um, and she can see the scene from there. And he said, he said, you don't understand, he said, she might be able to see over that wall. And, uh, oh, crikey, so... I found some local builders and they built a little platform of scaffolding and planks and um, I did say to them it's for the Queen um, and they built it very, very quickly. I told them not to spray it gold or anything but just to keep it nice as it was. And it was, the, and then she was able to get out there and view the scene. And I know a lot of people say this about the Queen but she was magnificent. She was really, really concerned about what she'd seen on the television and she was brilliant with the emergency services and a very touching visit actually um, uh, to that. And it was a, it was a dreadful, dreadful event, and it's one of those things that, you know, has had been a series of train crashes, and there's lots of reasons that sit behind that, that there's some pretty simple failures at that stage that led to some awful, dreadful losses of life. And um, But as I say, if, if one could take anything from it, I think, I thought the blue light response was, was, was extremely good. You've also undertaken the sort of lead role on U.S. presidential visits, state visits to the to London, United Kingdom. What additional pressures does that add when you've got, I suppose, what is described as the the leader of the free world in the president of the United States of America visiting the U.K., visiting both the prime minister, you know, the queen or the king as of today? Um, what's the sort of what what's your greatest challenge and the sleepless nights that you have when those sort of things are going on? The first thing is you're working with a brilliant team, and I'm, I'm always. And it's, it's not false modesty by me. It really is being run by you know, the great public order commanders, the uh, messengers uh, of this world, the Chris Allisons. These are absolutely top class people, and you sit there surrounded by some fantastic experts at every level. The PCs who are experts in, in their aspect of it, who work incredibly hard in the planning and preparation uh, of those events. So for me. Um, it was a great uh, comfort to be surrounded by all of those. And these were the ones who actually taken the big decisions. Um, I was often, say, fronting uh, these events. But we did get involved a lot in debates about um, public order and these matters and, and you know, some interesting internal discussions and occasional arguments about the ability of people to be seen, to be allowed to demonstrate, which is always very important to me. Um, 
Were they allowed to demonstrate near Parliament? How near to the President could they get? Were we restricting people's rights to demonstrate? There have been allegations that during the Chinese Premier's visit that we had restricted that. I think that was a, an erroneous allegation, but um, we were certainly seen to, uh, at that time, to confiscate banners. What people failed to notice is that these banners were being used to whack police officers over the head with, but the visual was of these banners of protesters being dragged away. And that's a myth developed that we were stopping uh, demonstrators from making their points. I was really keen on some of these visits to make sure that we were seen to allow people to march down Whitehall while the President was still in number 10, whilst at the same time, obviously, making sure that we were able to protect uh, the principle. And I think that those events worked really well. You know, say being seen to let people demonstrate whilst at the same time carrying out our task and avoiding a battle. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're trying to stop people marching into Parliament Square or Westminster Bridge, you are going to get a battle. And often it was the people in the front ranks who were not that hostile being pushed by people behind or people throwing bricks or bottles over their heads to the police. And you end up with this innocent people, you know, being in the front line of the battle against the police officers. And I used to say, I do not want to visit hospital tonight. I do not want to go and visit injured police officers. I do not want that we've got injured members of the public. And I, I think we did those, I thought we did those pretty well, of allowing demonstrations to go on. At the end of the day, there was often a, a bit of a battle with people looking for it, you know, where long after the main demonstration has gone. Um, but uh, I think allowing those demonstrations um, was a really important part of those big events as well. But there's a big cheer when that plane took off. You know, you'd be in the control room at the yard, you'd see the plane on the screen, and there'd be a roar as it as it left, and someone would say, can we just wait till it's outside of our airspace? And <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, commissioners like, you know, John Stevenson and Lord Stevens had come down, he'd, he'd give us lots of space to run it, and then he'd come down at the end and we'd celebrate together what had been some outstanding events. So I, I cannot praise the public order people of the Met and the City and the BTP and all the other Blue Light partners in London enough. I, I cannot take any credit for the success of those things. It was really genuinely a fantastic team effort. So 2004, you move uh, across to BTP as Deputy Chief Constable. You're there from in that particular position from 2004 to 2009. Was it sort of your witnessing of the BTP's response to incidents like uh, the Ladbroke Grove train incident that, that made you more aware of this organisation and the important work it did in policing our, our community rail networks and, and transport links across the nation that, that intrigued you about taking up that position, that organisation? Yes, I, mean, I, I came across them more and more as we planned and executed various things. I was, I was quite struck about the responsibility that people at quite low level within BTP were taking. Um, quite struck with the quality of the people I met. Um, Ian Johnston, now Sir Ian Johnston, had left the Met to go to become Chief of BTP and he rang me and asked if I would apply. Um, and as usual I said to Ian, when, where should we meet to discuss? And he's at you know, 7am Victoria Street, he said I'll be running through there, which is his want to run everywhere on the way to work. I realised I should never run with Ian Johnston because um, I'd end up agreeing with him because I couldn't breathe and talk at the same time, you know. Um, and he told me, you know, that how much was there to be done there. And again, I don't think he told me the entire truth about the, the enormous challenge. It was a really good bunch of people, seriously underfunded in every way. 
underfunded on their estate, on their IT, on their vehicles, on their uniform. Um, and so it, it's actually an exciting place to go because you had great people who wanted to do a good job. Um, and we had a new chair of the police authority who you know, bent the arms of the rail industry to get more funding. But it's interesting, when you're working in a public sector type body like the British Transport Police, but who are privately funded, and you have to convince quite uh, hard-nosed private sector people to give you more money than they're obliged to do. You have to demonstrate what you can do with that money in a way that was never ever an issue that I would have to demonstrate in, in previous lives. And, um, uh, and I thought we got very good at translating what we were doing, be they around bomb threats, suspect packages, deaths on the railway, theft of things like copper cable, not just around the crime issue, but around what impact that had on the delays on the rail network, the delay minutes and how that impacted on their bottom line. So, you know, we could achieve what was the right thing to do as a public body with it also achieving what the, our funders wanted to do, which is run a profitable railway. And that's, that was not always an easy balance, but we really, I mean, I've got to commend Ian Johnson. I worked with him in lots of places and he's a superb leader. Um, and he did very, very well dealing with the rail industry and other stakeholders and left me to get on with the operational side. Um, and we did an awful lot, you know, with the extra funds to improve the, say, the kit. I would, say, I would say to people, you're doing a big strategy, it's all well and good, but the people on the ground want to know what, what are you going to do for them? Is this better uniform, better body armour, better vehicles, better buildings? These things really, really matter to them. Otherwise, they think the bosses just talk a lot of hot air about 10-year strategies. You know, and it's delivering those things. And then coming back to and say, you've got the gear, you've got the kit, we've got more people, we're much better trained. Um, and now you know, we really do have to deliver. And I took you know, some pretty tough decisions, got rid of a much-loved old training school out, and, out in Surrey, an old country house. Um, it was falling apart, but it was full of memories for many people from BTP. And I, but I thought it didn't reflect what I was looking for, um, which was a modern you know, London... Um, uh, not necessarily London, but it was the best place for us, uh, building and with equipment that reflects a modern police force. Uh, um, uh, and like a lot of these old training places, was full of myth and rumour about the things that used to happen years ago, uh, which I didn't think were appropriate for a modern service. So, you know, I mean, you know, big modern custody suite, big modern operations centres became an armed force as well. Very good counter-terrorism um, capability, all of which came in to, to be needed in the, the events that followed as well. Yeah, which is what I'd like to, to kind of roll into now. Um, terrorism is one of our greatest challenges globally. It uh, doesn't discriminate. It happens everywhere from New Zealand uh, to Australia to the UK. And I suppose uh, everyone's minds go back to 9-11 in the US, which really, I think, brought global terrorism to the fore of all our minds. The UK and particularly London was rocked in 2005 when the terrorist attacks hit the very heart of our transport network and the streets of London, at which time you were in that position um, of uh, at BTP as the deputy and oversaw the response that was led um, in, in, in managing and responding to the needs and expectations of, of the communities of London and, and far and wide, along with, I believe, Brian Paddock from the Met. Can you talk us through what was um, an incredibly challenging day 
for those that tragically lost their lives, for Londoners uh, and yourself in that position with a huge amount of responsibility to try and work out what on earth had gone on. Because earlier on in the incident, it was obviously communicated that there thought had been some sort of electric failure on the line, um, which then, with a rapidly evolving situation, turned into something far graver. Yeah, I mean, I, I was having a, a finance meeting at BTPHQ and... Um, one of my superintendents came in and said, we've, we've got reports of a train crash in Edgware Road. And while he's talking to me, because he's all wired up, he said, hang on, we've got something in Liverpool Street. And hold on, there's something at King's Cross. And, and it's not just a benefit of hindsight. We thought, this, this must be a concerted attack. Because we were getting these reports about electrical surges, fires, crashes, something, someone had fallen under a train. It's always multiplistic. And if you could imagine someone like Paddington, um, you've got Paddington Railway Station, Tube Station, you've got Edgware Road or two Edgware Roads. Yeah, we were getting multiple reports from Liverpool Street, from um, all the surrounding um, Tube Stations, King's Cross, Russell Square. So we had something, I don't know, like 14 or 15 potential locations at that time. And it was pretty obvious that this was a concerted attack. People were dispatched to the scene because, of the, because the first calls, you think, well, this is a BTP issue, but these are underground trains. Um, uh, so the officers were dispatched, yeah, got cordons in place. Um, and then just as we sort of drew breath, um, we heard the, the bus bomb go off because it was just down the road. And shells of debris landing on the roof of our building. I never heard a bomb before, but everyone said, that's a bomb. You know, um, you know, some of my actions there, you know, you're trying to remain strategic. So you, you actually stop some of your people rushing to scenes because you know, you know you're going to lose them both physically and emotionally. Imagine what they're going to walk into. But that was, um, and we had people coming in from um, King's Cross into our headquarters, uh, some of the injured, because you don't know who was coming into the building. You know, so it's getting security down there. Um, but they're getting cordons in place, getting command structure in place. Obviously, you've done half the job. And then it became, not only through scale, but obviously it was a counter terrorist, it was a terrorist attack. Therefore, command would switch over to the Met. The Met, Chris Allison was in charge over there. We all knew each other. We trained for such an event only weeks before. Um, and we had all our assets available. I think one of the um, G7 or whatever it was, was on up in Scotland. And even though it was in Scotland, London was on high alert. So we had all the assets available. And then straight into the yard, me um, and John Stirling went over to Cobra. I went to the yard. Um, and then we started to put everything together from an amazingly confusing situation with... Can you imagine when we tried to reconstruct the comms afterwards, you almost needed a, a 3D model of everybody calling everybody else all at the same time. Um, and then getting some grip on chaos, getting some order, getting your command structure in place, your, your comms in place, your radio comms, getting uh, your marshalling areas in place. And that, I thought, happened remarkably quickly. Um, and that, I think, broadly bringing that order from chaos uh, was 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 done very very well as we started to reduce the scenes down to see what have we got um, and the you know, the transfer of the injured uh, away into the hospitals um, you know and, and then they asked me and Brian Paddock um, to do the first big press conference that afternoon um, down at the Central Hall at uh, Westminster a QE2 hall uh, in, in Westminster and there you've got the world's press in front of you and you don't really know what's happened. So again, it's a matter of, you know, no flannel, telling people what you're allowed to tell them, uh, telling them, you know, we're not making any assumptions about anything, but giving them what we could. 
but also in the margins. Um, with this with a guy called Chris Webb as the deputy head of the press side at the Yard at the time, um, who was really good at talking to the journalists about the, the rumours and the false rumours that were running around. So it was to stop people coming up with things which weren't right, to tell them what was true. But in the back of my mind was also, we need to be really clear about that blue light response, because I knew what would happen. You know, there's the shock, what happened, who did it, and what went wrong, is a sort of the way these things go. And I wanted to ensure, not, not to in any way gain any kudos from the disaster, but just to be clearly state that about the blue light response was as it should have been in that crisis. It was actually very, very good, I think. Obviously, lots to learn from that, which we got from the debriefs. But I think it was down to lots of training together, lots of rehearsals. That's one of my interests is to say, are, are we still doing that um, these days? Because it was vital that we knew what to do was vital, that we knew each other in the different command positions and um, practice, particularly in this sort of very, very complex world of all the uh, communication systems that we've got. Um, and, you know, and we, you know, we stay doing those that media presentations and slowly bringing in the senior investigating officers, bringing in the commissioner of the Met and bringing in people appropriately as the days wore on, including people who were doing some of the rescue work, particularly around in Russell Square, um, in those very, very deep tunnels, um, just to bring, you know, to, to, to help the public understand what it was that, uh, that we were doing there at the time. Um, but, it, it, you know, incredibly challenging for everybody, awful, awful event for the, the poor, the victims and their families. And, um, and you just think, you know, so many people were saying that it, 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 they were near the scene at the time, it could have been anybody that was struck by those vicious and cowardly attacks. And, of course, we've had quite a few since but it was a, a very defining moment for us all but I think that investment in BTP you know four days like this had really paid off and it was a yeah they were very much a part of that all blue light response across London. You've, you've prided yourself throughout your career on on being operational as you say you've always wanted to know how things are done how they're executed and to be able to do them competently so you knew kind of what was going on all the time and and how things should be done were you able to have an opportunity in in that scenario to, to be able to get down on the ground with the troops to understand how they were to understand what the challenges were or was it a case of it's it's such a significant incident which is so complex in terms of the crime scenes in terms of victim identification in terms of managing witnesses and, and families and all these different complex areas that it was one that you kind of had to step back from and just be briefed on what was going on on the ground. Yeah, primarily I was obviously getting briefings from the investigation side and, you know, that was steaming ahead, um, you know, very, very swiftly. But I was able to get out of the belt. I always like to get out of the belt. And it was brilliant to do with my media role that, you know, when you, by day two or three, you're looking at, well, what is, what are we going to say today? And I did go along early in the morning and talk to the... Um, various teams digging through the debris in incredibly tough conditions um, and sit down and have a cup of tea with them out on the pavement um, and talk it through. And if I'm honest, I was also looking at people to think, would you be appropriate to talk to the press about what you're doing? You know, and you want to make sure they're comfortable and happy with that. But I felt it was necessary to, because people were saying, they start to say, well, when can we get the tube running again? When can we do this? When we get there? And trying to explain the complexity of what people were trying to do to gather evidence. So obviously first it's life-saving and it's body recovery and it's evidence gathering. There's so much in this. And then it's the safety issues afterwards. Uh, people are remarkably um, impatient. And I can understand that, to get London moving again. 
And so he was really trying to explain a bit more and put a human face to that rescue. But I did go around to all the scenes um, to talk to the officers and, you know, and our colleague, Blue Light Services. I did go down to the uh, temporary mortuary um, in the city, which was remarkable. I mean, there were four mortuaries in one, these big marquees on blazing hot July days, um, which had been designed not that long before. I, I stood up on the balcony of the, the sports ground in the Royal Horse Artillery, isn't it? Yeah, um, uh, no, Royal. Anyway, the artillery company's um, sports ground in the middle of the city. I stood on the balcony there with a guy who designed this, who showed me the book, and he said, you can see it there in front of you now. And this had only been agreed relatively shortly beforehand. And to see it, as a place so no one wants to visit a place like that but when families were coming they we were able to present them with a, a place that was appropriate as it possibly could be to come and uh, to, to, to see what we've got there um, so all those sorts of things I thought went you know went really really well um, it was a tough debrief there are lots of things we could have done better and I think and that's the thing I was pride the blue lights with is having tough debriefs to make sure that we could learn from those events the next time round, but um, in that media role, whether it doesn't matter what I'm doing, because it could be Nottingham Carnival May Day, I want to be on the ground. Um, the you know, gold commanders used to get anxious sometimes if I was going a bit near the front, uh, but I do think you've got to know what you're talking about, not just from the official briefings you're getting, but from what you actually see in front of you, and I think that's quite important. And it was important to tell the public what was going on. And again, I think it was quite a, you know, I think it's a positive example of the way that um, we can inform the public uh, about what we do. 2009 to 2014, you are the Chief Constable of British Transport Police, a national resource. It's a large organisation, obviously um, centred around London, but you know vast offices up and down the country supporting the travel networks um, and the crime that goes on them um, and the people that are equally uh, want to use those uh, services safely. What was it like um, when you handed, I used to suppose the description here, you handed the keys to your office, you, 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 sit in, you sit behind this desk which you'd seen Ian Johnston lead so well throughout his career. They're big shoes to fill but you've had an incredibly successful career up until this point. It must be quite an overwhelming feeling to think it's now my time, I'm now going to lead this organisation through however many years, it turned out to be five you had some big events through that period, the 2012 Olympics, probably the biggest one in terms of when your organisation is on the national stage. What are your key priorities taking over an organisation which is heading in the right direction and doing some amazing things? Yeah, it was interesting. I've worked with Ian in lots of places. Um, we're very different people. Uh, we're still very good friends, um, but we work very well together. Um, and it was, it was interesting stepping in, crossing the corridor, or the, you know, the office and, and taking on his office. I was very fortunate to have as my deputy, Paul Crowther, who went on to become chief after me. BTP through and through, really, really good guy. Uh, an incredibly experienced BTP officer um, who was able to take on the operational side with huge relish and, and uh, energy. Um, and in me, my job, again, dealing with the rail industry themselves, dealing with Department of Transport, the, the, the Home Office. But again, I like getting out and about. Um, and I love it, you know, because you're out and about in Inverness on patrol or Triorki or Birkenhead or Truro. You know, I mean, this is really good fun, you know, working with essentially like local officers. I'd go up to, uh, say, Inverness and 
our offices up there were almost part of the local constabulary. This was before this spot. We go into Northern Constabulary's canteen, and they'd be known by name by the chief constable you know, in these small forces, you know. And they'd be carrying dual radios as before airwave really took off in everywhere. Um, and uh, and it's really interesting. And you know, going up the valley lines, up the Ronda Valley, which is where my mum's from, um, you know, really challenging times actually with some disorder, with special constables and PCSOs doing way above the pay grade on some of the work that they were doing down there, you know. Or to be out and about with our one officer in Truro that we had at the time. Uh, we doubled that after a little while later. But, um, and then be able to get more asset, more money from the rail industry to invest in places where we'd identified big gaps. And that was funny enough, was in places like Kent on the Medway Valley line, which had lots of disorder in other parts of, uh, of the country. Um, but again, big focus on operational excellence, big focus on things like cable theft, copper cable, which was bringing the rail industry to a halt. It wasn't a terribly fashionable thing for other forces. But again, I've got to compliment my deputy on this, who very much pointed out to the forces across the country how much they were losing through metal theft, not just from the railway, but from everywhere, being recorded as a whole range of different things, like criminal damage or whatever, but actually pointing out that this was happening everywhere. And it was things like the plaques of war memorials. This was statues. This was all sorts of things. And no one really had a national handle on it until we got a grip on it. Um, and then we were able then to point out just how big an issue this was, way beyond the railway. And then we started to work with um, Parliament for a bill to make um, uh, scrapyards to be, um, to be uh, non-cash, so we could trace people. And we got a bill through on that, in the teeth of some opposition, um, to, to stop this sort of cash uh, and no names. You know, there was always a register at... Um, Scrapyards, but anyone who's ever visited a scrapyard prior to this legislation would open up the book and find Mickey Mouse was a regular customer and things like that. Um, and people getting cash for stuff which was obviously stolen. And so we'd set things up, you know, we'd use undercover officers to sell things which were obviously stolen. We'd carry out raids on them on Friday afternoons when they were full of cash and full of gear. Um, really tried to disrupt them, but that was, a, that was just tip of the iceberg, really. The big thing was to get the legislation change in there. And we worked on things like that. We worked on how long we took to deal with fatalities on the railway line. You know, breaking down every component part of it. Who goes? Why do they go? What do they do? How do they search? Respecting the fact you're dealing with a death that could be a murder. Um, it might be a suicide. It might be an accident. You've got to investigate it properly. You've got to satisfy the families and the coroner and everything else. But do it at pace. Do it properly, but do it at pace. Get the system running again. And it's not just around profit. If you go and shut a railway on a day like today and people start baking in stranded trains or freezing in the middle of winter, you have another major risk. People will detrain, they will break the windows and get out of the track. So there's all sorts of things around that, as well as their general welfare. And then looking again at things like bomb threats and suspect packages to making sure that we react in a logical way that does not mean we overreact to anyone who gets on the phone and says there's a, a bomb on a railway station. Now, all of those things to refine and refine those processes so that we could, as I said earlier on, that we could do our public duty whilst at the same time of trying to keep a national system 
on the move. And I occasionally wonder when I see motorways closed for certain incredible lengths of time, whether or not a little more pace in those um, activities wouldn't go amiss. It is quite incredible to think about it, really, because ultimately trains move across vast, vast distances. I use um, uh, Great Western Rail um, out here in West Berkshire, and you think to yourself, you know, a, a crime could be occurring on a train at any time and, and travelling vast distances in terms of where the victim has either been the victim of any particular crime, be it, you know, a theft or a sexual assault. And there's this incredible messaging service that you can have with BTP, where if when you get to your final destination, there are police officers ready there to support you, to, to, to intervene, to hold those accountable that seek to do others harm or have done them harm. It's a, a phenomenal responsibility which I think we often take for granted in terms of the response capabilities of BTP. Um, I wanted to, to talk about, obviously, the, there is no greater challenge than large major events for a chief constable. Sir Mark Rowley had his on day one with Her Majesty the Queen's funeral. Um, yours came about with the 2012 Olympics in supporting the security operation across the National Transport Network. It, you know, those events always must have you on high alert of sort of stress and, and, and the challenges that come with that to make sure all the plans are in place, that there are contingencies, make sure everybody's in the right place at the right time doing their job, because it is a huge team effort. Uh, and as the chief, you're solely responsible for the success of your piece of that major operation. It must have been a, a triumphant moment, as you say, similar to that when Air Force One takes off and leaves British shores to have an event go ahead successfully with no significant issues in terms of uh, how it's gone about and how it's been executed. Again, you know, go back to some brilliant planning, absolutely brilliant. You know, again, I mentioned before, actually, Chris Allison, who is my now assistant commissioner, um, with his national Olympic role, which he, he he discharged with huge energy and great charm. Bear in mind, you're dealing with forces across the country, and he really did unify everybody on that. He asked me if I would look after the control room project for the Olympics, which he told me would be five minutes a month. And it's, again, somebody else would mishandle as a truth occasionally. Uh, but it was great to be involved with that, because to, to go down to Weymouth, you know, to, to help set things up down there and have it, Essex mountain biking, which always makes me, you know, anything why Essex for mountain biking, but it was a it was a brilliant course they had over there, or Eaton Dorney. I mean I wasn't doing the local work, I was I was making sure that, that we had a national infrastructure of, of control rooms that worked for everybody. And that was it was a real fun to be to be part of that. And then as you say, to be it was a primarily a public transport uh, Olympics, and they had all these so-called Zill lanes, you know, for the VIPs and the journalists, which were hardly used at all. People went to the Olympics to Stratford on public transport because the public transport was so good. You know, I travelled up and down those lines all the time. If I wanted to meet the MD of a railway company, they'd be on a platform somewhere near Stratford. Everyone threw themselves into this. But you'd be on that train and you'd come across, I don't know, the Filipino gymnastics squad talking to the Sierra Leone basketball team. You know, these sort of every sort of humanity was there. And there was the unfortunate pickpocket that took picked on one of the American wrestling teams, which wasn't a good idea. Um, but everybody worked together. I mean, I think it was a joyful summer, absolutely joyful summer. You know, I, I didn't get to see any of the Olympics until I went to the, the Paralympics afterwards. But to be there, to be part of it, to play a small part, you know, I think was just an outstanding event. You know, and the way that the military came to the assistance at the end when others couldn't quite fulfil their obligations. Uh, and to be working with all those other public sector bodies uh, was an absolute joy. And um, I just look at that some with massive, 
uh, nostalgia, really. Um, and uh, it, it was just an absolutely super event. And let's not forget, only the, the 12 months before, we'd had the 2011 riots, you know, which BTP were involved with, with the mayor, with the city, with everybody else, and, and others across the country, which was a horrendously awful time. You know, and I was working with Sir Hugh Ward on, you know, from ACPO on the sort of national response uh, on that front and quite sticky relationships with the government at that time as well. Um, you know, it was a very, very difficult time. You know, the, the sort of the grip, the command and control, all of those things, there was a lot, a lot of challenges there, a lot of lessons to learn from there. So it was just wonderful 12 months later to be involved in that, that glorious summer of... Uh, a celebration for people from across the world. You know, it was a, 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 just a brilliant summer, I think. Which I, again, I'm not, I'm not a great one for nostalgia. If you look back at it, it's a, a, a rather a golden time, I think. 2014, you've handed the baton on to BTP and exited the service. Were you ready to go? Had you you, you done enough and, and, and done what you wanted to achieve? You're ready to move on to, to, to new and greener pastures outside of policing? Yeah, I mean, you've never done everything. There's loads of things you think, oh, crikey, there's more that I should have done, you know. Um, but 45 years is quite a long time. Um, and, um, you know, I thought about it, sort of, you know, planned it and all the rest of it. And that's had a very, very good deputy who took over from me. So I every confidence in the organisation. And a great top team of people at BTP as well. Um, and I think you always know in yourself... Um, you know, you think, mm, the moment you start thinking about going is probably the time to go. You know, and I've always felt that about any job that I've done. I think mm, once you start having those thoughts, you know, it's time for someone fresh to come in and get stuck in and move things on from there, however possessive you get about these things. I, I was asked to look after the 2014 Strategic Command course right towards the end of my days, which I did, which is interesting, you know, to see a whole new crop of young potential chief officers coming along. I was impressed by that course, much more operationally focused than what I did. They had to be operationally competent, public order and uh, firearms operations, and all of those things. Some of the things that people criticise chief officers for sometimes, but I thought, I thought they were put through the ring quite a lot. And there were some really good people on that course. Um, and then, um, you know, had, you know, time to hand over. And you know, I do the, you know, as you do in any job that you love. Um, and then uh, I, I started a little bit of um, uh, consultancy work because you get loads of offers, you know, you get, everybody wants to take your lunch, get your coffee. A lot of these things come to nothing, by the way. Um, uh, and it's, it's quite flattering. But I did a bit of work for a few companies. Uh, it was interesting. It just was not me. I just thought, no, this is not me. Um, and. Um, and then almost by accident, you know, bumped into someone walking up the driveway at Blackheath Rugby Club. Uh, bumped into the, uh, the manager there, um, former commander of the Flying Squad, um, who, uh, Albert Patrick. Uh, we always greet each other with a headbutt, that's our sort of relationship anyway. Um, and he, he, he introduced me to um, the outgoing chair of, uh, of Oxley's NHS. It was a, a former cop that I didn't know. who um, was passionate about it and kept on at me, so you won't apply for this. I said, I don't know nothing about the NHS. He said, come on, you don't apply for it. And it, was, it was his passion for it. I thought, crikey, you're a tough old cop and you love this. And um, I applied for it and I'm sitting in the office from Oxley some eight years later now, you know. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, and, and I just love being with people who want to do a good job, who are good people, you know. Um, they're doing it for the right reasons. And, and so I've taken on London Ambulance Service as well. So I'm 
busier than ever, and my wife reminded me that I did promise I'd retire, um, but I don't feel like it at the moment. Well, and, and a couple of big highlights must have been being the recipient of the um, OBE and uh, the QPM, two big milestones. It must have been incredibly proud days for both you and your family to receive those accolades for all the efforts and hard work that you'd put into policing, surrounded by fantastic people who allowed you to do what you did so well. Yeah, there was. I mean, you know, it, 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 we, we are a team. There's very, very few things we do on our own. And if I've got any talent, it's about picking good people to do things better than I can and to be part of really good groups of people. You know, it, we are teams when we do these things in the public sector. To take my mum to Buckingham Palace, to have lunch with the commissioner afterwards at the yard, uh, was the biggest highlight for me. You know, uh, she was saying from the Rhonda Valley, she was a miner's daughter, nurse. Um, I was an interesting child, I would have thought. We were a big family, we worked on the farm, perhaps didn't put quite as much in as I should have done to things I should have done. And um, I, it was for her, I, we always say this is always for someone else, but it really was for my mum, you know. And the same when I, was a very late graduate of the London School of Economics, you know, to, 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 to take her to the Albert Hall for that. Um, it was a lot of it was around thanking her for working with a big family, working full time, dealing with uh, some pretty interesting challenges on the farm and stuff. Um, and that was, that was the big highlight for me. And uh, entertain other members of my family along when I went along for the OBE. Um, I think Kylie Minogue was there when I got the OBE and all the press left me and went to talk to her. But anyway, they were... <laughs> but you, you stand there talking to some real heroes, you know. I mean, I think Jason Robinson, the rugby player, was there. and Yeah, you look around. I mean, and it's not false modesty, it really isn't. But you listen to some of these stories and think, wow, you know, what are these things that people have done. And, and we also see now, of course, you know, these various honours lists, you know, uh, with degrees of controversy. There are so many really, really good unsung heroes out there who just do just great work. And, uh, and I was just really fortunate to be so often in the right place at the right time, I think. Well, Andrew Trotter, recipient of the OBE and the QPM, it's been a fascinating just over hour and 10 minute reflection on your four decades in British policing, which is an incredible achievement in itself in terms of what you would have seen, the experiences, the support that you've provided, not only to your colleagues and those that have worked under you and that you have worked under in supporting them, but equally the communities right across the UK in terms of your work with BTP, with the Met and Kent. So on behalf of my colleagues and I here at the podcast, thank you ever so much for your service. Thank you ever so much for everything you continue to do uh, in, in the NHS because that is critically just as important as a service provider in public service as anything else. In fact, probably sometimes even more uh, underrated than it probably should be. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on the podcast and to share your story. Hey, welcome, Molly. Thanks ever so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.